What is up, guys? Welcome to the Tony and Dakota podcast. Today, we got a virtual guest from outer space, and Tony's going to introduce him. <laughs> For people who can't see or just listening to the audio, Michael put uh, his background as like out in space looking down on the earth. And uh, Michael's out of this world. <laughs> uh, Michael's in the same Future Flipper All-Stars program as us uh that's how we originally met him and uh it's just been awesome getting to know michael and also um every time we go to vegas michael gives us a place to stay which we're going to talk about that a little bit how uh he's infamously generous so uh michael sue has multiple businesses. It looked like he even tried trading at one point. What I could find from my research, I was like, trading? I didn't know Michael was doing trading. But also, uh, he's got an Amazon store. We don't know how it's doing necessarily. His flipping business, wholesaling business, real estate business, going really well. We're going to talk about some of the struggles now that the market is changing, what how things are looking. Uh, he's also a super, super smart guy with... Uh, his primary uh, income coming from software. So really high-level software guy, no stuff that Dakota and I will never understand unless we put in <laughs> hours and hours and hours with our little monkey brains compared to Michael. This is Michael Sue. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Was there anything that Tony said you felt like was untrue? <laughs> um. You guys are not monkey brains. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, we, I, based you know, on Tony's results, good at the self-deprecating humor. Yeah, I say based on results, that may be true. Yeah, we could start. We could just start with that because my third question is: uh, we took a personality test in Future Flipper, not knowing that it had an IQ component, and uh, I think that Michael scored the highest out of the entire mastermind, and then we found out that. Dakota and I were toward the bottom and then they explained how that's actually a good thing. Cause they wanted us to feel good. And they're like, you need to be uh, lower IQ, you know, with each other. If you're going to be working with each other consistently, because the high IQ people and the low IQ people have a really hard time uh, consistently working with each other because they're not on the same wavelength. Do you find it hard or difficult to relate, communicate and work beside monkey brain people like us? <laughs> i feel like i feel like you're, you're you're misquoting them slightly right so so the they said like the this test that we took was for how fast you learn right so mm -hmm. there's different kinds of smart right mm -hmm. um but they did say that like people who have a similar similar uh cog cognitive score um tend to not get frustrated at each other as much because like you might move faster than someone else is keeping up and then that can get frustrating, right? So actually, it does kind of happen sometimes, like on, on my team where, you know, I'm like, hey, let me just explain everything. I run through it really quick. I feel like it's super obvious, you know. And we, I actually ran my VAs also through the cognitive test. And after that Gary Harper presentation, I was like, oh, okay, so this is why, like, it sometimes feels like they never get what I'm, I'm trying to say. <laughs> so like nowadays, like I'm more conscious of trying to break it down a little bit more having trainings, you know, so that like they can actually give me feedback on like, no, I don't understand what you're saying. Like you're going too fast or that like, you know, the, I'm, I'm making a couple logical jumps where like I need to kind of break it down a little bit more. Um, 
but yeah, no, I, I mean, like I do, you know, like once I took that and he explained what it was, I was like, okay, well, yeah, I, I do learn fast. There's a lot of other types of smart too. Uh, you know, that like, you know, I'm just like people with photographic memory, for instance, that's a different kind of smart, um, but it wouldn't necessarily score well on the test. Record. What do you think uh, are other types of smartness? Like go through what you think is actually intelligence, like, cause obviously like you're very high, it seems like in like, you know, book smart or like, what would you say your gifts are? Like, what are you smart at? And then what are the other types that you see? Yeah, I think. I think for um, I think for me it's like the ability to grasp concepts. So like, I mean, you said books are smart, but actually, like I wasn't the best student in really? school. Yeah, no. Um, so I was kind of like an A minus. I could always be at exactly like ninety percent or eighty nine point. An A minus is like not the best in school. An A minus. Oh my gosh. Oh, I don't know. Like that's from where I come from. That's kind of, that is actually like not the best. Um, wow. But, uh, but like the, the thing is like, you know, so I, I, I guess it, that was more of a motivation thing. So I, I'd actually sometimes take tests without really studying and then grasping the concept on the test. And then I come backwards and actually like, oh, okay, like this is how everything works. Go back to the beginning of the test and like now be able to answer them. I'd be learning from other questions that would teach me how to do the questions before, um, which, you know, was always interesting. And, and that was actually something I noticed early on. Um, um, my, my, my parents actually had me take the SAT when I was like 10 or something. Um, and it was for this like youth program, right? It was called uh, CTY, I think, Center for Talented Youth. Um, so it was like a little summer, summer school for, for kids at Stanford. Um, and you had to take the SAT score to kind of get into it. And, um, you know, I found out later that a lot of the kids actually prepped for it. Like their parents had them like, you know, take classes and stuff. I remember like pretty clearly, cause it was really weird. Like I showed up at, um, West Valley college, community college where I, where I grew up and I'm sitting next to all these high schoolers. I'm like a little 10 year old and they're like, what are you doing here? And Cause it was like, we were taking the SATs and I, I literally remember sitting down and it literally was like the test we took. Like I was figuring out what these symbols meant that I'd never seen like on like, a, you know, like on a, like on some trigonometry, you know, thing when I was like 10, but it was like, oh, well, there's only four options. Right. And then you start backing things out and then you go to the next question and then it explains something that might help you with the previous question or couple questions ago so hmm. yeah and what do you think what do you think the other kinds of uh like uh intelligence where you 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 allude to them but like a lot of people i feel like uh don't really um appreciate them i would say like especially in the school system like obviously in the business world we appreciate every kind of intelligence yeah but i say the school system doesn't so what would you say are like you know other types of intelligence yeah well i think like I consider like photographic memory definitely a type of intelligence. Um, and especially for book smart, like there's a lot of types of majors and stuff where like actually just being able to memorize things is going to get you straight A's, right? Mm. Um, so there's some people who like they look at a book once and they can recall like viscerally the, the page, like what it looked like in, in their head. And that's kind of crazy. Um, you know, there's 
you know, people who are emotionally smart, right. Who can read people, mm -hmm. um, who, who kind of, you know, can, can work well with people. And I'd kind of play that into like what we, like what people call street smart too. Um, there's something about people being able to navigate, um, the world. There's also like, um, not necessarily people who come up with, who like learn things fast, but then people who are creative in terms of they can take what they've already learned and then apply it in a way where, um, you know, where, where then all of a sudden they seem extremely intelligent, right? Cause they, they're able to take what they do know and apply it in ways that other people uh, don't even think of. Mm -hmm. I like it. So uh, for viewers and people who don't know you, uh, you're going to have to uh, brag a little bit. I want to like lay a foundation of like what you've been able to accomplish and yeah. like kind of your, what your business looks like right now. So like how many rental properties do you have? How many flips have you done? What's your revenue look like? How many employees do you have? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I have a full-time job. So just, just keep in my mind. You do. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, that's why it's so hard for us to schedule um, to schedule one of these calls because Tony's Tony and I. You guys don't work past five, and, and that's three p.m. for me. And yeah. <laughs> we're trying to yeah. not work past five. How many? How long have you been at your job for? Too like, talk to us about like your job, and then uh, how you're doing all this other stuff too. Yeah, yeah. So I've always kind of been in startups. I've been at this company for seven years now, actually. Um, oh. So this is a startup, but it's been it's been a while. It's been a minute. Um, so yeah, I guess like just to start off, like I, I've always been in tech. Um, if you're familiar with startup world, like the first job out of college was Y Combinator, which is, you know, a prestigious accelerator. Um, then, uh, so I actually did the whole like drop out of college thing and then parents are going to kill me, went back to school kind of thing. Um, and then, uh, then I actually tried to start my own company for about a year. Um, I Honestly, like I sh should have talked to Coda because what I was really missing is sales. I didn't, I was kind of building the vacuum, like way, way nerdier, like engineers sitting in my room, just building, <laughs> but <laughs> needed to talk to more customers. Um, and then I joined the company I'm currently at um, called Blueboard. And, and we basically sell experiences for like large fortune 500 companies. Um, so we, we plan budget and, and basically send people to do cool things, um, uh, usually as rewards or like tenure for people who are at certain companies. Um, so yeah, right now, like, you know, I started about, I started when the pandemic happened. Um, I used to be a digital nomad, so I was traveling a lot. Pandemic hit, nothing to do. Um, and I decided to buy real estate that I've never seen before okay. as my new hobby. Um, and so I started buying out of state, uh, actually bought in Indiana was my first one. Wow. So shout out to Indiana. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then I kind of have bought in different States over time. Um, but ultimately I've kind of, I've kind of, uh, kind of realized that I like to have a certain level of economies of scale. Like it's, it's cool to, when you see a random deal, a random state and you're like, oh, that's going to work. But, uh, you know, you, it's just so much more work. And then also, like, um, you know, as I'm building my team, which I'll talk about in a sec, and the Clark score part, it's hard for them to keep up when you're, when you're like, running around, changing strategies, like, bringing in new people all the time. Um, and so, like, I have a team of uh, four VAs right now, 
Um, and then I have one boots on the ground in Denver who's kind of running the flips. And so basically in all my rental markets, I don't have boots on the ground. Um, it's really my property manager um, and, and a contractor that I generally use. Um, yeah. And then, and then we partner with people as well. Sometimes, um, for instance, we have some flips we're partnered on California, um, you know, but that's more of a personal relationship. So then how yeah. many rental properties do you have right now? Cause I know some of them are virtual altogether. How many rentals yeah. do you have? 27. Yeah, 20, 27. 27? Mm -hmm. That's quite a bit more than the last time we talked. You have 27. Yeah, I thought I thought I told you guys I had twenty seven. No, time. I think you told us you so. had like eight. I, I thought he had like ten. I was like twenty seven. And what states are you in? Like, how many you got in each state? Let's talk about that. Yeah, so I'm I'm in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, so Fort Bragg, military military yep. town. Um, I'm in uh, Indianapolis, yep. uh, so closer to home to you guys. Um, I've got a quad in Denver. And then I've got um, that's that's a I've big got deal. Syracuse, New York. Wow. Yeah the the Denver one was was a good purchase. That was like that's, early 2020. That sounds like a home run. So are you in the seven figure club yet? I am, depending on how much the um, the property values drop. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the funniest thing about like having a net worth of a million is like. It, it can go at any time. So I was like, yeah, I'm a millionaire. And then like yeah. tomorrow I may not be. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's still, it's still not nearly as bad as being like a crypto yeah. millionaire though. Like, holy crap. I would hate oh, to yeah, oh, yeah. tell everybody I was a millionaire. Yeah. If you three weeks later, you're so, you look so dumb. Yeah. You, you, you go from billion to nothing. That happens to <laughs> so many people. I'm an NFT millionaire. Okay. Uh, guys, I need a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guys, I might have borrowed money to buy my NFTs. <laughs> I'm in like debt. So, uh, how many flips have you done this year, and what does your uh, total, uh, what does your your gross profit look like? Yeah. So, so we actually have a bunch that aren't completed yet. Things are slowing down a little bit. We we we've done. Um, let's see. Sometimes it's hard to count the projects, but I, I think <laughs> I can definitely look it up, um, verify after afterwards. But I think it's eight flips, um, one or well, actually, so nine. But then we have one that's converting potentially to an Airbnb just because of market conditions. It's a mountain home, and people just aren't buying as much, um, you know, non-primaries. Um, then we have like a a purpose purchase like like purpose-built airbnb or like one that we bought specifically for airbnb um and then uh you know buying rentals um you know that's my bread and butter i still especially in this market i like my rental markets better a lot easier to deal with i think the rentals are just generally more stable yeah and like if the prices fluctuate like i'll just wait it out right like as long as it's cash flowing like i don't i don't really care as much it's it's really the flips especially Flips in, in majors are like kind of like the, the hotter markets, like the, the ones you think of as expensive, right? In our case, Denver, you're buying at, at LTVs that are higher than 75%. So you, you, you end up in situations that things take longer where you don't necessarily, you're not able to refi without putting a lot of cash into it, right? Because mm -hmm. like if you have to refi like 5%, 
or 10% into a property at an 800 grand purchase or ARV, it's like 80 grand, yeah. 40 grand, you know, you have a couple of those and that's where you start to have uh, challenges. Yeah. So, so far your eight flips, um, you average 50 K a flip, hundred K a flip. So you made like 400 to 800 K so far this year off of flips. In the middle. No, so a lot of them are, are finishing up because um, I didn't start flipping until this year, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. I actually only did rentals. So like the majority of my 2020, like when I started in like mid-2020 and 2021, uh, all of that was just equity gain. Because um, my thinking back then was, hey, I got my, you know, I got my, uh, you know, six-figure salary. Um, and I'll just do burrs because like I don't really need the cash, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's as, as you're growing your team a bit more and you're trying to think bigger where you're like, okay, now I really need income because you got to pay people. Right? You got to pay Andrew. You got to pay office manager. You guys have an office. Like th th there starts to be things where you, you're like, okay, well, I can't keep just trying to keep equity because, and you might leave deals, some uh, money in the deals or something might happen. And then you start thinking, well, I should just, flip some of these right i'm sure like you guys kind of went through the same similar process because you guys were pretty rental focused in the beginning yep. and at some point you're like okay we need, we just need more cash on hand and decide to flip or wholesale more right right um so with the market shifting and everything that's going on now are you going to adjust your uh like thinking after these flips are all done or what are you kind of thinking after you get done with these eight to ten flips yeah yeah, yeah. so um we are we're probably going to um, we're probably going to change our strategy a little bit. So, um, well, one is like r right now with the market. Okay, so I guess there's two vectors, right? One is like how do we want to do flips going forward, and how do we want to do rentals going forward? And the second part is how are we adjusting today for the current market? Have you been thinking about investing in real estate? It's not like what you see on HGTV. We created a course to show you how to really invest and create a profitable flipping and wholesaling business. We give you marketing strategies like how to pull lists, who we target, and where we find the money. We go over sales, which includes live calls and negotiations, scripts, role-playing, and so much more. Everything that you need to know to flip houses is in this course. And if there's anything that we missed, we will create a video to answer your specific question. This knowledge has made us over a million dollars and we're selling it today for just $997. Click the link below. So, so one for market conditions. I think that right now there's a lot more opportunities and it's a lot safer to buy on the lower end. Um, I think that, you know, a year or two ago, like actually it was really hard to buy your like starter homes because everyone wanted to buy those right um you're seeing a lot more deals on the market even like on mls now you can negotiate down right mm -hmm. and so um i think like the the holy grail right now would be like buying in a rental market starter home ideally seller finance or sub two you know so you can get that three and a half percent rate or, or even two or, or four or whatever it is um and those, that's what I consider a home run in today's market. Um, so like, that's kind of what we're going to be doing going forward. Like seeing if there's people in situations where like they need help getting out, um, we'll take some over. Um, we've already kind of seen it. So like, I do have these projects I'm a little bit worried about, but we did just buy two more rentals in the last two weeks or under contract. So I guess I'm a 29 once they, they, they go through. Um, 
but I'm also trying to sell a couple properties in New York and move the equity around. So anyways, 27 to 29. Um, but like, you know, like we're, we're seeing it too right now, like where like things that are on market, like people are willing to drop um, to a point where it makes sense for, you know, us as wholesalers or, or investors. Um, yeah. And so like, I think the market's changing. We've got to adjust to it. Um, there's a book called Recession Proof Real Estate Investing by uh, Jay Scott. I think it's really great if you're investing in this market and you're trying to navigate like what's easy. I do think though that if you're good enough at what you do, you can do the same thing in any market. So like, I think you guys are really good at sales. You guys can just keep doing what you're doing if you're getting at the right price. Yeah, that's what I was actually uh, talking to Tony and the team about is uh, whenever you're flipping properties, you're buying based on margin. You're not buying yeah. based on, you know, like, oh, I hope that it goes up in value or I hope that I'm getting this. You're buying based on the margin that you see in the deal. So realistically, yeah. if the market goes down, you just buy lower. So I don't think our strategy yeah. is honestly going to change very much. But of course, again, like you talked about in the lower end market or like, you know, a mid price range, we always have a better backup plan because the cash flow is going to mm -hmm. be there. So I think we're very, very protected where we're at. Whereas in yeah. like, you know, when you're talking those flips in California, you're talking, doing flips in Vegas and stuff, like it goes down so fast that your margin goes away way quicker yeah. than, than where ours are at. I think the worry is the, yeah. the dispo, uh, the disposition bottleneck is like where your money ends up being stuck. And I think you're mm -hmm. kind of experiencing that too, from some of the flips that you were telling us about. It's just like, man, this thing is like leaking money monthly especially if you don't have something set up with a, a private money lender where they get their money at the end, you know, yeah. you're like have a monthly payment that comes out. It's like, man, that's, that's probably the thing that we need to like prepare for, which is kind of why we started a fund. Yeah, definitely. No. And I, I think like, and just real quick for your listeners, um, <clears throat> I think that um Definitely on the lower end markets, right? Like if I was flipping even in Indianapolis or um, doing more flips in Fayetteville or something like that, like I would feel a lot more comfortable and, and I'd want to negotiate harder than like I have in the past, like for, for a little more margin. But I think that it's it's a lot more acceptable as well in those markets, right? Because I am I was always looking at at least 75% of ARV for the, for the burrs and the rentals and at a price point, you know, somewhere around 100, 200, maybe under 100 where I can cash flow. Um, you know, when you're in Denver, like in California, the markets, you know, like people have been, been wholesaling at 85, 90% ARV, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, it changes the math so much, right? Cause when it's, when the market drops 10%, everyone's wiped out in that market basically, or, or 15, 20%, right? Um, and so I think like, that's like one of the things like, you know, I know that probably a year ago, right? Um, people were talking to you guys like, Oh, you guys did like what fifty deals, but but then like your profit per deal was so much smaller, and then you see like other guys in Future Flipper making like two hundred, five hundred grand a deal or something crazy, yeah. right? And that's when you're like, oh, like I want to be part of that. But when the market's this, you know, going down, actually, I bet a bunch of people today are looking at you guys and like, oh man, like that's that's awesome, like where you guys are at. So I think it, you know, like perception changes as the market changes. Yeah, I'm super thankful for the market that we're in, honestly, because I look at I look at how much money they have to put up for the amount of money that they make. And uh, to me, it's a lot more risky. 
Um, whereas, you know, mm -hmm. we put up a hundred to 200,000 and we, on our average flip, we're making $50,000. So we throw up a hundred, 150 and we bring 50 to me. That sounds a lot better than throwing up 2 million to make uh, 200,000. Like that's a little scarier for me. Yeah, no, hundred percent. But I think the thing that was happening is like people were going above asking last year. Right. So like mm. your 200,000 might randomly become 500,000. And then you guys are working 10 flips to make what someone else did in one flip. And, and that was what, yeah. but that's the enticing thing, right? That's why people chased it. That's why I started moving up market a little bit as well. Um, but definitely like with how fast the market turned, which I didn't expect it to change so quickly. It felt like it was almost overnight. Um, you know, I think people are definitely trying to hedge. And so like our strategy for the flip side going forward is more, more like, honestly, it's one, one is like flipping in, in the markets that, um, there's more of a margin. The second thing like for Denver would be just to like limit the number of flips we do, where it's like, if we have enough cash in the bank and then we have this margin, right? Like making sure we have that backup plan. So basically always being able to refinance out of, of the deal. So if the margins only, you know. 85% and we need minimum 5%, maybe 10% in the bank so that we can refinance out. Right now we're getting really creative. I, I think there's actually a bunch of outs and I think that's where I kind of excel is coming with creative solutions. Um, like for instance, right? Like, um, you know, you gotta do arm's length sale, right? You can't sell to yourself, but like if you had someone, right? Like let's say we have an 800 grand house that we want to sell, it's a little slow in the market right now. Um, but if we refinance, we'd have to put in on a hundred grand property, let's say 25%, that's 200 grand, right? Um, or if it was 20%, it's 160 grand. That's a lot of money to leave into a deal, to get out of it. And we, <laughs> we do have some equity, but um, you know, it's not enough to cover that whole thing. But if you had someone who is willing to be a partner, they could buy it as a vacation home. They're putting in 10% down, right? Then you sell it. 800 grand like because it was a flip you know we'll have some equity um so let's say that even with the price drop and in, in the equity now we can with that partner we can give them the money that that we're making on the deal or partner up somehow and if that's like you know 60 grand and they're putting in 80 grand to buy the property now they basically bought our, our property at a lower interest rate for let's call it like four percent down or, or three percent down right and so now we're able to get out of that property and create some sort of partnership when win, win with everyone, repurpose it to an Airbnb, we can run that for them. Um, and so we're getting creative with things like that, just seeing like what we can do. Um, and there's also, I don't know if you guys saw this, but um, uh, you know Jonah? Shout Jonah? out to Jonah if he's listening. Yeah, he's in Arizona. He, he oh, doesn't yeah, come out yeah. that often. I met Jonah. Events. Yeah, he was a super nice dude. Yeah, yeah. So he, he actually found a three and a half percent arm recently. Um, and he said he like uh, they do it in Colorado as well. So I'm talking to his broker, but like there's like all these like weird banks and situations where you might be able to optimize a little bit more here and there. And I think it's just right now it's becoming it's, it's going to separate those who are like good from those who kind of just rode the market. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, betting on us being one of the good ones good at That's what we awesome. do so what what does the arm uh, go up to so it's an adjustable rate mortgage and when does it adjust like three years five years seven years i think i've adjusted i just five one. Oh, nice five I, one i heard about yeah. one guy this morning he just told me about one that uh gives you like 
three and a half percent year one year two it goes to five and a quarter and then after that is five year adjustable is that basically uh the way that one works or what is a five one so no the five one just means that it's um it's actually i forgot what the one part means but basically it adjusts in five years it doesn't change on on the like in terms of the rate um yeah. until the fifth year okay so basically for five years you're fixed and on the on the year after, like on that fifth year, then the rate can change and then you, you can either refinance or you just accept the rate change. Are you letting deals fall through the cracks because you don't have good systems in place? We've been there before and we've tried several different CRMs and Ari Simply has been the best. Ari Simply tracks your KPIs, does automatic follow-ups for you, and even records your incoming phone calls. The system is simple to use and has more features than we even know what to do with. If you're looking for a great CRM, try RE Simply today. We put the link in the description. Check it out now. Yeah, I um, thought that way, the guy that told me this morning was an interesting structure though. Your first year's like a really low rate, then the next year after that, it goes up a little bit. And then it's five years adjustable after that. I'm like, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot of interesting structures out there. And if you, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. So like, if, if you're in a tough spot right now, listening to this podcast, like, explore a little more before you commit to like, you know, to a Kiavi or, or one of the, the big guys. Cause, cause in the, in the world of small banks, there's uh there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of options. Yeah. I love that advice. Like uh, it's about, you know, how can I figure this out or what can I do instead mm -hmm. of like uh, just to going with, okay, this is my only option. Cause the market's turning and you get fearful. It's like, no, there's like, look in and find your best strategy. That's definitely good advice. So uh, we try to figure out kind of like how people were raised and how, like what their life was like. What was it like for you okay. growing up? Where did you, so it looked like you came from uh, somewhere in California. Is that what got you into software? Like how did you, how were did you, you raised? Did you grow up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe you were influenced. I'm just I'm just making hypotheses. I'm gonna guess that you yeah. were influenced by the Silicon Valley types to get into definitely, software, maybe. Yeah, no. So I mean, like, honestly, nobody I grew up with didn't have like a parent in tech, basically, right? So to me, like, I grew. I mean, I grew up in a bubble for sure. Um, everyone worked in tech, you know, homes in this in the bay area like you know near the offices and stuff are really expensive right like every home is a million dollar home a three two you know thousand five hundred square foot is one point i mean like when i was little it was probably like one mil and then you know like nowadays i don't know about today after you know after the market changed but like there's like two thousand square foot homes like where i grew up where now it's like three million dollars for 1960s 2000 square foot home with, with like, you know, maybe some people have upgraded the built-ins, but when you're spending like 10 grand on appliances on a $3 million home, it doesn't really matter anymore. So it's like, there's a lot of old homes that aren't updated and they're still like two to $3 million. It's kind of crazy. And honestly, that's also why I never got in real estate. Um, so that, that, that definitely affected me. I was like, okay, so like, if I want to buy my own backyard. I need to buy $3 million of debt. I'm like, holy shit. Oh, can I swear a little bit? I just said, yeah. okay. Um, but yeah, no, so growing up, like everyone was in tech. I actually grew up where, uh, in the same town that Wozniak lived, Steve Wozniak. 
So like all of our computers were Mac computers back when like PCs were more popular in our elementary schools and stuff because he donated them. Um, and then, you know, like where, where, I where my parents live now is kind of across the freeway from Cupertino, which is where Apple is. Right. And then we're, we're 10, 15 minutes down from Google headquarters, you know, and Facebook's a 20 minute drive north. Um, and then I also, you know, ended up going to uh, Berkeley, which is still in the Bay Area. And then I worked in San Francisco for most of my you know, beginning of my career, um, also in tech. So, but yeah, definitely very tech influenced. You know, it's kind of a bubble, you know, like while I'm my friends, you know, at my high school, there, there were kids working for Cisco while they're in high school as, you know, engineers. Um, and then a lot of the parents who are coming to the, the, you know, the career fair days or the career days for high schoolers were, you know, people who are managers or like somebody in tech, right? Like we, we had this one of the guys, dad was a CFO of Adobe, you know, tech company. Um, and he was talking about his career and stuff. Um, but yeah, hundred percent, like very tech focused. I didn't know anyone who didn't really think about doing tech and startups. Um, and I mean, some people looked at doing finance, but it was, uh, it was definitely a bubble for sure. And then also just like growing up in that area, you, it's like, I, I realized like, excuse your perception of a lot of things, right? Like what's important, like, excuse your perception of crime, excuse your perception of investing in housing, right? Like, like $3 million home, $2 million home. Like I just didn't even bother trying to start. Um, Cause yeah, I mean like for you guys too, right? Like I'm not sure about where you guys grew up, but like where I grew up, there was no crime. Um, so we actually also had this really weird thing where there's no street lights um, because it creates a better ambiance for the neighborhood, <laughs> something crazy like that. And like the, the, the fact that there's no crime means that like for most of my life, I, I created a lot of bad habits that I had to change once I moved to San Francisco. So like, you know, for instance, um, you know, uh, like I would leave my backpack in the front of the car or like we would leave our front door unlocked in the house and like, you know, it would be fine. Like no one worried about it. Um, or if you left the garage open, like, you know, like you would never expect anything to ever get stolen. Um, and so like, you know, I went to San Francisco, I, I had my laptop bag in the front of my car and then someone broke my window and stole it. Right. Like just little things like that, where it's like, I clearly grew up in a place that was a certain way. And that being said, I also felt we were actually like felt pretty, pretty poor. I don't know if I'm going to get flack on the podcast for this. <laughs> I mean, like we weren't, we weren't poor by any means. Like my parents were engineers and, and we weren't rich, but like <laughs> in the area, like, you know, we were a very standard family. Um, the, the thing though, is that like when you've, when your houses cost that much and you're on like, you know, good salary, like you actually are sometimes scrimping for dollars, but you, you have a, like a million, you know, million dollar home, but like you're, you're trying to clip coupons to save extra dollars because like you're trying to fit everything within your budget, right? Cause you've, you've got this giant payment. Whereas like, if you grew up somewhere where like the housing payment was a lot smaller, like we might've been balling on that income you know so it's it, it definitely influences you awesome well you said that or you told us that you kind of um try to start up 
and then it didn't go as well as it could have went. Um, how did that, uh, like basically giving up on that dream or like stopping the startup that you had started, how did that change your mindset? And then what did you learn? Yeah, I think, I think what I learned is that one, a couple of things. First, I didn't know how to do enterprise sales. I was building enterprise software like and I hadn't business? sold business to business enterprise software. Like I would have had to sell to companies that had a lot of engineers. Um, this is probably going to be like, you know, multiple five figure per year product SaaS. Um, and, and your, your target market has to be up market for them to even solve that problem to, to want to pay to solve that problem. Um, they need to have a lot of data at the time to uh, use the product I was building. Um, the other thing is you, you got to be passionate about it. So there's this thing in startup world where they say like build something, scratch your own itch is one of the best ways to do it. I did build something to scratch my own itch, but it was an itch I had at my previous company and my previous job. Um, that was a pain for me. But as soon as I leave the company, like I didn't care about it that much anymore. So I built this thing and I was like, this is not that fun. Like, why am I <laughs> building this? <laughs> like I had the problem, but it's like just by leaving the company, I didn't have that problem anymore. Uh, and then the other thing, I think with um, startups, you're you're coming up with a completely new business model and concept, and there's a lot more moving parts you have to figure out. Um, and honestly, like if if you're doing a startup, I feel like you got to be really passionate about what you're doing, because otherwise, if you're just trying to make money, you probably should do something else. Because uh, there's proven business models, you could, like like real estate, for example, that you can pick up, and you know everyone will tell you what what to do and what's good and what's not. Um, and it's just way easier to figure it out. So, you know, I think that I'm still interested in startups. Um, I also don't think in the future I'll want to go the venture capital route. If you want to become a billionaire, right, like you probably need to get venture funded and you probably need to be high growth to like, you know, become a billionaire by the time you're what, like 30, 30 or 35 or, or something crazy, right? Do an IPO. The thing forward. though is, yeah. The thing though is like, you know, you, you'll see those people on media, but if you want to become a, like a millionaire, actually, you want to take a high probability path to becoming a millionaire rather than taking a very low probability path to becoming a billionaire. Because what I can guarantee you, like after having gone through like venture funded startups a couple times, is that basically they're pushing you to go bigger or go home. And almost everyone goes home. Like all these companies, millions of funding, most of them go home. And it's, usually it's a single company that's returning the entire return for the fund, right? Like one Google pays for all the failed startups. Um, but, and then within that one company that didn't fail, like only like the, the founders are going to become billionaires, right? And then for 10 years, you're slaving away and you have no idea like if you're going to make it out to the other end. And just like, you know, how real estate can turn really fast, like startups turn really fast too. Usually you're burning more money than you're making and you're getting fueled by this venture capital. Once they don't like you, you're screwed because you, you never had a business that was, that was uh, self-sustainable um, until, until you, like you reach the kind of the end game when you're IPOing or something. And so like, I realized that for me personally, I'm fine with just creating a business that creates you know, options, freedom for myself, you know, like you guys clocking out of work at five, like 
you know, that's an option. That's a choice that you can make. Um, and uh, in that I, I like having a little more control, you know, over, over my business. Um, I like, yeah. And then I also, I also like, um, I also like not, not having my, my fate controlled by someone else. So like it, I would probably just bootstrap a startup if I did one again in the future. So then uh, talk about how you first heard about real estate because you grew up kind of without any inspiration at all. What first got you inspired? What made you this may helped you make the decision to get into it? And, uh, and then what got you to join future flipper? Yeah, I, I guess like it was, I think it's the idea of, uh, I mean, it was originally the idea of passive income. Um, so it's like, you know, stock market goes up and down, you make money, <laughs> you lose money, but you never feel like you actually have anything, you know, it's just, and if you sell it, then now all of a sudden you, your, your income producing assets now gone. But then if you keep it, like, unless you have dividend stocks, like, you know, and if you did have dividend stocks, you'd be making what, like two, 3% mm -hmm. um, cash on cash or less. So it's just like, yeah, or less. And uh, you're like, okay, well, it's going to take me forever to retire. Mm -hmm. um, but I think with um, with real estate, right, we can calculate it. Like, yeah, there's, you know, there's like maintenance and stuff that are a little harder to plan for. But like, you know, there's like certain formulas and stuff where people are like, okay, well, this is what you can expect for your cash flow, right? And you can stack it, you can add it up. And then over time, if you want to, you could delever and, and pay them off or, you know, while you're growing, you can keep levering them up. But like, it feels like something, you know, it started to feel like something where like, I have control, right? Stock market, I'm paying someone else to manage a company. However, they perform is how I pass it, right? Real estate could be passive. It could be, usually it's not, if you're really buying a house, it's not going to be as passive for sure. But um, you can scale it up and down, right? You can decide that you want to do less of something, pay someone else to do it. Or you could do it yourself. If there's a problem, and you don't like how it's being taken care of, you can take care of it yourself, right? Like, I just feel like if you want to fix your situation in real estate, you have so much more control than, than in the stock market. And I also think that, you know, people say, there's statistics saying like, oh, well, real estate makes less money than, than stocks over the long term. That's true if you're buying everything in cash at market price, right? And you have so many levers to speed up your return and also as long as you don't go bankrupt real estate kind of forces you to do to have some good habits it forces you to save money which is basically like paying down your mortgage that's basically like a savings bank um that you're forced to pay into every month right um generally it's going to inflate you know it usually doesn't go up and down as much and because you can't sell things as fast like usually for most people, it makes it so that they'll hold it through ups and downs. They, they won't like panic sell, you know, because COVID started. Um, and if they do, it'll take a couple months so they can still sell. But it's it creates, I think, good habits for people. Um, and with the ability for, you know, people like us to get it at discount, to flip it, to like apply ourselves into the properties, like we're, we're actually able to do more than just beat the stock market we, you know you can become like the code and tony and become millionaires 
So uh, what would you say is your biggest struggle right now? My Denver flips. <laughs> uh, things, things are just sitting on the market for a while and, um, and slowing down. And, and in the past, like the market kind of, um, kind of protected everyone, right? Like you hear stories of people who they, they had problems with their flips and sat there for a year but it appreciated. And so they made all their money back. You know, it's like, Oh, all the holding costs, you know, went up, you know, you paid in holding costs just as fast as the market was going up. So it's like, Oh, well you got saved by everything. Um, and then as soon as you listed, like there'd be a bidding war, right? As long as you didn't do a terrible job at the rehab. Um, so I think like things are now starting to shake out. Right. So like I have one property that's been on the market for 45 days. Um, you know, we're starting to, you know, we had some offers, you know, we dropped the price. People said that price is right in terms of the feedback now. Some people didn't like the layout or whatnot. Someone said it was their dream home, but they're not sure if they're moving here yet. So then, you know, they're not sure they're going to buy different things. But it was just generally a smaller buyer pool. I think we're at around the right price now. Um, and it's a mountain home, right? So it's it's not like people usually move there as their first primary purchase. And people generally aren't purchasing as many vacation homes right now so like we're you know that was the one where i was talking about like we might airbnb it out we might look for ways to partner um with little cash out of pocket you know maybe we we take a loan and then like uh sell it on lease option or, or something like that um but there's you know different options and then i think you know there's just um there's a bunch of them that i have right now so, you know several flips going on um, so trying to get some of them to market, some of them we think will sell fast, but it's really the cash flow. So my biggest learning in this recession is just to protect your downside, um, which I, I did, but probably, you know, in the euphoria of the of the market going up, I didn't do it as well as I can. So, you know, I got a little bit of figuring out to do at the moment. And th there's definitely some um, some of the some cash flows issues with, with all the mortgage payments that. You know, if we sell quickly, like we'll be fine. As soon as we sell one, we'll be fine. But um, in the meantime, you know, we're hustling. <laughs> what? Uh, I feel like you would know a few good like books or podcasts. Is there any that you regularly recommend to people? Yeah, I feel like it changes a lot. Um, um, so there's a book called The One Thing. I think that one's really good. Um, it's it's about focus. Um, and if, like, I think for me in particular, I used to try to do too many things. Um, I still kind of do sometimes. Uh, there's a, like a, the recession-proof real estate one, if you're in real estate at the moment and um, you had stuff before the market turned, I, I think it's a great read just to kind of map out, um, you know, how the market might be moving in the future. Um, there's a book called Team of Teams. It's about uh, managing organizations at scale and um, how to make uh, teams move independently, you know, with less direction, right? Because I guess that book I think is really interesting because generally people think of management as command and control. So I'm the boss. I have to manage and dictate what every single person does. Team of Teams is more like, think about like, you know, a bunch of Navy SEALs in different squads, and they're doing their own thing. 
and coordinating, but very loosely. And then the 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 people on the front lines are the ones figuring out and what if if anything needs to change, like they'll change it on the fly and they might not necessarily tell the the commander, right? It might not go all the way up the chain. Um super interesting book. It's by um it's by like uh like like a military general, but I think it's applicable to business. Okay. And then uh this is one of the questions that we ask everybody. So 70 years from now, you're on your deathbed and you have a final message that you can deliver to the world. It'll be your legacy. It could be a paragraph, a mantra, a saying, a sentence, a billboard. What is your message that you think the world needs to hear? Well, that's a tough one. Listen to Tony and Dakota's podcast. <laughs> that is so true. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Dakota, I noticed you don't talk as much on these. Uh, I guess actually Tony usually does talk a lot more. <laughs> no, I usually talk more. I just realized uh, I didn't have that much caffeine. I really realized that during this whole thing. And you know who's supposed to be talking the most? Mr. Michael Sue. Yeah, I see. I see that ghosty. You're drinking the nasty ghost, though. That's the crazy thing, dude. That one's like hard to drink by the time you get to the bottom. The sour warhead. Is that what it is? This one? Oh, yeah. No, I just picked it up because I haven't tried this one before. Yeah, that one's brutal by the end. But yeah, no, I usually talk more. Just tired. Should drink more caffeine. I'm sorry, but let's get it. Let's get a real answer now. Obviously, they know that. The world knows they need to listen to the Tony and Dakota podcast. They know that. If you listen to this, you already know. What's the second? So is, is this supposed thing? to be? Is this supposed to be a message, or is this yeah. like supposed to be like something I'm leaving for? You know, or is it, is it like what it's my gonna be? Is? It's gonna be on your. It's gonna be on your tombstone. It's a legacy message to the world. I mean, honestly, I think if it was on my tombstone, it'd be about it'd be about family, and it'd be like um, something about like a life well lived, and you know, um, to all my loved ones or, or something like that. Because I think ultimately, like you know, we we like talking about business, we like talking about being successful, making money, but I feel like the means to the end. Like the reason why we're doing it this at the end of the day shouldn't be to make money. It should be, you know, to spend time with your family and to build meaningful relationships with those people. Um, okay, making it more scientific, there's there's a Harvard study done on people who are dying, who are, who are on their deathbed, and talking about their regrets. Um, it's something I, I actually looked into a lot in my earlier 20s because I was trying to figure out you know, like what, 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 what should I be trying to do in my life? You know, like making money feel soulless, right? To some degree, right? It's fun. Mm -hmm. It can be, but it's also soulless and sometimes it sucks. Um, but, uh, but yeah, almost everyone, you know, regardless of how much money they had, they, they wish they spent more time with family and friends, you know, made more connections with people. And so mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think that says a lot that at the end of your life, that's what you're going to look back on. So don't, don't forget about that um as you're going through life i like it yeah that reminds me of ed Milet. i always quote him uh he says people matter and things don't and so i always try to remember that okay i'll put that on my tombstone yes. people matter, <laughs> <things don't. laughs>
Yeah, I'll just write. I'll write it. I'll write it for you after you're gone, buddy. I got you. Damn, dude, you saying I'm gonna die first? <laughs> Probably not. Hey, you're older, bro. No, he's not even that much older. It's crazy. He's only 32. Yeah, I know. He's older than me. Yeah, he's Asian. He'll yeah. last longer. <laughs> I'm older, but I'm Asian. I won't crack. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's gonna eat at the Korean barbecue every single day, and we're gonna be out here. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, how can our listeners get a hold of you, Michael? Yeah. So, um, um, on Instagram, I'm Michael Sue. Um, I, you know, email if you want to talk about real estate, Michael, M I C H A E L at cozy, C O Z Y, cashoffer.com. Um, I also have a YouTube I haven't started yet, but if you go to michaelsue.tv, it will redirect you to my YouTube page. And hopefully by the time you watch this, I'll actually be doing social media. Awesome. Are there any uh, final thoughts you want to share with our viewers? Not really. Thank you guys for having me on the podcast. You know, it's fun. It's been exciting kind of grow together. I think that's the coolest part of the kind of shared experience we've had, you know, also just, um, you know, joining a program or, or, or mastermind of any kind where like you can, shoot questions with people in the trenches and kind of feel like, you know, a little bit of camaraderie with everyone. Um, you know, it's been really valuable and, you know, that's how I met these guys and they sleep on my floor. And that's how you become a millionaire guys. Actually, yeah. that's the takeaway. That's how you, you stay a millionaire. You, you yeah, stay our cheap. Message, <laughs> our message to the world is make friends that will let you crash on their floor, bring an air mattress and, and some bath towels yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't forget the bath towels yes every Critical. time i'm like Critical. i'm like dude we bought towels the there's last three times <laughs> there's never enough wait where where are your towels like uh, I, i'm not throwing we away. found them they're all in the laundry room in that upper cupboard uh so we found them oh, okay. over there yeah but uh no we appreciate you coming on and we appreciate you letting us stay at your house every single time you're uh yeah you're awesome and you're like definitely a giver and you're definitely a genius, and I'm sorry that we're not as smart as you. <laughs> but hey, we look at the scoreboard. Who's made more in the last couple of years? Hey, we're dumb enough to uh, be working for ourselves. How about that? <laughs> it's working out, bro. <laughs> for now. <laughs> no, 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 but you guys, you guys are good market, man. And like, I don't know, you know, regardless of what it is, the stars of the line, Lady Luck is on your side and you guys are, I, I believe, pretty well protected. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. Thanks again for, uh, for coming on. See you guys on the next one.